Welcome to Beyond. Today we are joined by Judy Lamborn, who's the Executive Director of OpenGate International, a global nonprofit that reaches survivors of human trafficking. Judy went from a drug-abusing prostitute uh, to a loving wife and mother of two. Her journey of fear, physical, and emotional abuse to, um, to prostitution in Las Vegas to seeing her true worth in Jesus. She will share a remarkable journey of redemption and the power of God's love to change the course of one's life. She's the author of a book, um, From Vegas to Victory. Boy, that isn't a more poignant title. Um, where she shares her past challenges as an abused individual who spent years on the path of self-destruction until she finally discovered the keys to victory in life. Judy, thanks so much for coming on the show. So thanks glad for the invitation. Today. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, this is a fascinating story because we live in a culture and a climate where there is no, um, you know, there is no bad outcomes. I mean, I, I think people, kids, look at life like I can have whatever I want, when I want, how I want, and there is no uh, deleterious effect from those choices and those lifestyles. And I think it's very corrosive and very damaging. And so your journey was really poignant as I read through it and I got to know it a little better. Um, what you come through and, and, and kind of the process you went through. And I think this is a very important story to get out to everybody. So before we go there, take us back to your early life and those events that shaped your choices you know, at 8, 12, and 14? Sure. So I was born to a single mother, but I was placed for adoption right away. And so I was adopted into what you would say is probably outwardly the perfect family. Mm. Um, they already had a two-year-old little boy, middle-class uh, white America in suburban Los Angeles. But what happened behind closed doors was a lot different than what happened in public. So behind closed doors, uh, I know now to describe it as emotional abuse, verbal abuse, physical abuse. Um, I grew up as a small child terrified of my mother. She was the disciplinarian. She was the one who was the, the strict one in the house. My dad was very laid back, but I grew up in that kind of an atmosphere and that shaped how I, even at, a, at the youngest age that I can remember is five, being the peacemaker in the house trying to keep everybody happy at five years old, trying to make sure that my brother didn't run away or that my mother didn't get mad or, you know, and when you live in that kind of an environment, constantly doing something to not to make somebody mad, it shapes how you approach everything. You're not so much thinking about you as a small child and what you can do to be happy, and um, you're, you're thinking about what's gonna happen next. I don't wanna make somebody mad so I don't get spanked, those kind of things. And so. I, I took that into my adolescence, and unfortunately at 12, I was introduced to pornography. Mm -hmm. And pornography is what helped shape what I thought a woman should be. I looked at those women, they were pretty, uh, they seemed desirable, it seemed like the right thing to do, and because of my mother's strict nature in the house, I wasn't allowed to do a whole lot extracurricular activities. Sports, yes, but not much else. And so that was an outlet for me um, to see and experience what all my friends were doing, but I didn't have the opportunity to. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it was a very twisted, corrupt way of thinking and uh, drove me into a place, um, you know, and exposed me to things that a 12-year-old girl should never be exposed so this is to. You got parents in this idyllic home, but there is some emotional, physical abuse, mm -hmm. and you got controlling parents, and maybe there's religion now. Notice I'm I didn't sure. say relationship no. with God, no. but there's religion, dogma involved. Absolutely. And so in that attempt to control and have the perfect daughter and grow up in their sort of ideal what perfect is, mm -hmm. um, it forced you to look elsewhere to some of those outlets that your friends were, were experiencing at some level. Yeah. Um, so talk to us about some things you learned the hard way, because obviously if you get exposed to that mm -hmm. and that kind of parenting style, which I wouldn't suggest is the most, most healthy, mm -hmm. and I've known a lot of people that struggle with that because they want to control the outcomes of how their kids 
experience the world. Well-meaning, yeah, well-intentioned. Well what are some things you learned the hard way in that process? One of the, I think probably one of the most difficult things was that my voice matters. Mm. My opinions matter, my ideas matter, I can be creative, um, that I have something to contribute and I have something to offer, that what I have is enough. Who I am, who God created me to be just as I was, was enough. I didn't have to be like the girls in the magazines. I didn't need to be like my friends because I saw what they were doing and I was envious of it only because I wasn't able to do it. Now looking back at the things that they were experiencing and doing as young people, unbeknownst to their parents' knowledge, they regret that. I didn't have to live through that. I made those choices later. Some of the other things I learned the hard way um, is that other people's opinions of what you should be um, can sometimes be a very cruel taskmaster. Mm -hmm. um, being my first relationship changed my looks, changed everything about me in order to satisfy or please who I was with. Again, not satisfied with who I am. Looking at, looking at the women in pornography thinking I needed to look like that, thinner, taller, um, more outgoing, less outgoing, talk more, talk. It, you're n never being satisfied with who I was. If there was one thing that I could go back and change, I would tell myself, you are okay and you are fine just the way you are. You don't need to change anything about yourself. You're so okay. So go back to your, your, your adoptive parents. Was mm -hmm. it that your mom was never satisfied with who she was and therefore she projected this austere, crazy standard on you mm -hmm. as an adopted child? Or was she sort of feeding the next generation? Or was it the experience you had where I got to be the peacemaker, I got to placate everybody, mm -hmm. and then I really don't know who I am in this mix. I really haven't really developed who I am. It's, you know, starting at five, you said right. I, I had to take on this bonkers role for that, you know, for all yeah. I mean, that's crazy. That's a lot yeah. of pressure. So what was it, do you think, that w when you think about those experiences, because you know, what you said really struck me where there's a lot of kids that have to go jump off that proverbial bridge without the parachute, mm -hmm. smack hard or smash hard, mm -hmm. and then walk up one day and realize, you know, I probably should have listened to the authority in my life because they actually knew yeah. the better way. Yeah. Authority is a good thing. Yeah. Authority is a great thing. It's not a. It's not something that to be rebelled against. It's well, not it's something not abusive, to be. Right? As long as it's not abusive, yeah. authority is good. My mother was the way she was, not because she didn't love me. She was the way she was because she thought that she was doing the best she could to protect me. Right. She was trying to protect me from anything that she perceived to be a bad influence, which ultimately happened anyway. Right. And so the you know any other way of providing for your child financially materialistically, all of those things, we had the best of everything. But the nurture, the, the relationship, that kind of thing. You mentioned um, religion. Church was a mandate every Sunday. My mom sang in the choir. My dad ran the soundboard. We were there. We wore matching dresses to church. We were that family. But it, there was no relationship. There was no opening of the Bible at home. There was prayer over the meal, which was more ceremonial than it was anything. Um, but as far as the relationship, like knowing why you need to have God involved in every part of your life, not just a social obligation on Sunday, that wasn't something that I was ever taught. Yeah, a lot of people like to show, like a show sure. works. I'm going to uh, yeah. the Preakness, and we're going to show, and hopefully have a good showing at church, yeah. and we're in the right class of people, and we look a certain way, and we, we sort of come across, which is just nuts, because it's really about the relationship at the end of the day. It is. So what is, is the biggest hurdle that you've had to overcome in your life? Probably what I mentioned. Knowing, I mean, just believing and convincing myself that um, I'm pretty cool that what I have on the inside of me uh, can change the world. Mm. Um, not only the pain that I've gone through, but the blessings that I've experienced, my life experiences, um, 
can be a blessing to the world. God can use someone like me who went through what I've gone through to be a blessing to the world, not to discount what I have to offer. You know, it's interesting you say that because as I think about that, there's so many girls that struggle. And for that mm -hmm. matter, there's boys that struggle. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that struggle. And if you're absent, uh, a moral force, I'll call it, in your life. And some mm -hmm. people believe in God and a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But you're absent that moral construct of right and wrong and hope and something beyond this earth. Um, it, it seems pretty void. So as you went through this time, um, how were you able to maintain a calm perspective given the uncertainty of that circumstance? You, you talk about growing up in this home, going to church, feeling you had, you had to go to pornography. How did you maintain a sense of true north or which way was up in, in, that, in those periods of time in your life? Happiness represented to me in, in peace in the home when nobody was arguing, when there wasn't some kind of you know chaos going on. Um, as far as trying to keep myself calm, uh, the things that made me happy were music. Um, the things that made me happy were reading. I read a lot. Uh, I poured myself into school. Um, performance, because I felt like if I performed better, then my parents would be happier with me, mm -hmm. that I would be that ideal person uh, that they wanted me to grow up to be. But unfortunately, you know, without the proper boundaries and without that proper nurturing, eventually all of that overprotective stifling of my life. When I graduated from high school, I purposely picked a college that was just far enough away from home that I would have to stay in the dorm. My first night in the dorm, drank my first beer, smoked my first cigarette, and I thought, this is it. Finally, I'm gonna get out from underneath that stifling overprotection of my mother, and I'm going to experience what everybody else has been doing all this time. And I realized it was it was so empty and so I'd never been so sick in my life. You know, I mean, you know, it's like, oh, what is this is not what it's cracked up to be. So the one last thing that um, I needed to experience, I had never been able to have a full fledged like boyfriend. And at 17, I was still a virgin and I was embarrassed of that. I was told you're not supposed to sleep with anybody until you get married. But it was more of a law. It was more of that that ruling that came down and you didn't want to bring shame on your family if you if you acted in that kind of way. And what kind of girl would people think you were? Oh, God forbid, if you got pregnant before you got married, look what that would do. Because we lived in a very small town. Everybody knew everything about everybody. And so that's why I didn't. I didn't, no one taught me. I was, no one taught me why should you save yourself for marriage? What is the sanctity of that? What is the importance of it? What, why did God create that to be so pure and so holy and so wonderful and beautiful within the covenant of marriage? Nobody ever explained that to me. All I knew is that I wasn't able to do what everybody else was doing. So the first guy that would stand still long enough, I mean, I wanted the, same, the one that all the girls wanted but nobody could get. That's who I set my eyes on, and I got him. Right. I got him. And then I realized, well, this isn't, crack, isn't what it was cracked up to be either. It was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. It wasn't beautiful. It wasn't awesome. It wasn't, it was life-changing, but it was painful. It was horrible. And, and I thought, well, great. Now I gotta marry this guy. And I don't even like him. And I'm, I'm stuck because you're, right. supposed, to, you're right. supposed to marry the first person right. you have sex with. And I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. I actually did get engaged to him, but I, I didn't marry him. You know, something that sort of stands out to me with religion, mm -hmm. it's law versus love. Mm -hmm. God's about love and understanding and grace. And religion's about very austere, very harsh, very <laughs> rules-driven dogma. Yeah. And um, it's an easy way to do religion because if you have a bunch <laughs> of people coming to church and I can just hand out a bunch of laws yeah. and you just follow the laws, it's sort of like society today. It's sort of built around the same construct. But yeah. what people are at their core are beings that need and, and feed and thrive on love. And relationships. Realness, right, and relationships. Yeah. And not 
being played. So I think that's part of the challenges with um, what I call organized religion, because I, too, grew up in the church, and I think it, it leaves a lot to be desired, quite frankly. Sure. Um, it's really about the relationship, I, I would argue, uh, in my opinion. So you mentioned something really important. You said your exposure to, to pornography at 12 formed your ideals of relationship. Mm -hmm. How did this impact your choices moving forward? Well, if you know anything about addiction, you introduce an insatiable appetite. So the pornography wasn't enough. Um, you know, that drove my life. More parties, mm. you know, more men, more all of this. It's insatiable. Um, so eventually I, I landed up in uh, San Diego and I left the Midwest because the Midwest was boring. Sure. I needed more excitement. That appetite wasn't, you know, wasn't fulfilled. So I moved out to San Diego and there's a lot more opportunity in San Diego than there is in small town Iowa. And so, those, uh, those opportunities proved to be pretty detrimental in my life because I have the type of personality that I'm going to do the whole, whatever it is, I'm going to go all in. I'm gonna, it's 150%. And so in San Diego, I learned that the cost of living was a lot higher than it was in the Midwest. I had to get a second job. I answered an ad in, in the newspaper for a cocktail waitress, and I thought, I can do this. I was a cocktail wait I was a waitress in, in the Midwest. I can do this. I didn't know it was a topless bar. I walked in, did the interview, and again, I'm making decisions in my mind. I'm not going to be one of those girls. And how old are you at this point? I'm 19. 19. I believe I'm 19, yeah. Sometimes numbers get a little fuzzy um, because of everything that I've gone through. Memories do come every once in a while, but sometimes the numbers and the dates. When I wrote the book, the editor was like, we need to know the dates. And I said, you don't understand. There's sometimes I couldn't even remember what I did yesterday, much less 10 years ago. So. Um, but San Diego was the beginning of a downward spiral for me, a, a catapult into, to me, a place of darkness. Mm -hmm. I was introduced to crystal methamphetamine at that bar. Mm -hmm. And I saw the girls do, do it. I was a cocktail waitress for three weeks, Ben, three weeks. And I watched these girls. And I watched how hard I was working. And I watched how hard they were working. And I saw the money that I was making. And I saw the money that they were making. And I said, this is ridiculous. So I went, I marched myself down to the uh, police department, the vice squad, the San Diego police department, because you have to have a license to be a topless dancer. Mm. Like you have to have a license to catch a fish or a license to sure. drive a car. You have to be a licensed topless dancer. And I got par my permit and I became a topless dancer in a bar in Point Loma in San Diego. And I began to make more money than I'd ever seen in my life. So as a dancer, you have to have a stage name. Nobody really calls you by your real name. So I created the name Pepper because I used to watch that show um, and I loved it and I thought it was, a, it was a great name. So they gave me the name Pepper and Pepper was born. And within that, I could retreat. And all of those things that that little girl experienced, all of those things that were taken from me, kept from me, withheld from me, all those things that I thought I had been robbed of, got a chance to be pushed back. And I really had a chance to create an entire persona that was bold and it was brash. And Pepper would, she'd play pool in between sets with the cigarette hanging out of her mouth. She would do shots of wild turkey with beer chasers with the guys in the bar. I mean, she was the one that everybody wanted to hang out with. You know, all the dancers would hang out with Pepper because she can introduce them to all the men. And the men wanted to hang out with Pepper so she could introduce them to the, to the, the other dancers. I loved it because it was attention. It was attention. And the thing that I had wanted, love, relationship, was it was coming now. It was coming. And I loved it. Pepper. Was there a part in the back of your mind, though, where if my mom could see me now, oh, she yeah. would suppress this girl with all this potential? Oh, yeah. 
and I'm going to show the Midwest, Iowa, what it's really about. You bring up a very good point, because I told you I was raised in church. I knew everything I was doing was wrong. As a matter of fact, I refused to dance on Sundays because Sunday's the day you're supposed to go to church. Mm -hmm. It's the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, right? But I also, on the flip side of that, I was like, nobody's going to tell me what to do anymore. Nobody's going to hold me back anymore. You're not going to keep me from experiencing everything that life has to offer. And so I went for it. And one day, um, I noticed, I told you, I, I noticed all the girls, um, they either did cocaine or meth. Everybody smoked weed. I wasn't much of a weed person because I never wanted to do anything that would slow me down. And so uh, someone introduced me to crystal meth. And the very first time I tried it, I was hooked. Hmm. And it just became, I, I barely ate or drank anymore. Um, I just smoked, drank, and did meth and danced. I mean, it was my life from sun up to sundown, from the time the bar opened to the time the bar closed. Customers would bring food in and make sure that I ate it, but pepper was unstoppable, unstoppable. Any man, any customer, you had professional athletes coming in, actors coming in, all under the guise of we don't want anybody to know we were here, they all wanted to be with pepper. And so it was, um, it was fun. It was a lot of the attention, I soaked it all up, but on the inside, there was always that knowing of, th this is not what you were born for. Yeah, you have God in your heart going, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got this you, is, but. This is, yeah, yeah, but I always push that back. Sure. I push that back, I push that back. Um, but eventually, San Diego got boring. The men here got boring, the, the, you know, the, the opportunities at the bar got boring, and, and I said, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm done with this, ended up in Vegas. And the, Why Vegas? Because it never sleeps. I thought, it's got to be more exciting than San Diego. It's Vegas. Vegas is Sin City. Vegas is lights. Vegas is money. Vegas is, you know, there's, everybody goes there to play. And I thought, I can make a better living in Vegas than I can in San Diego. And they were right. I found a place to dance. I found a hookup for my drugs. We did private parties all the time. And one day, someone offered an opportunity to some of us girls to do a private party. And we got in a limo and began to drive, drive, drive outside of Vegas. And I... I began to get a little worried because we were driving a little bit too long, but Pepper was always in control. And I was like, when are we gonna get there? Because we've been driving a long time and we were in the desert, I could tell. We kept driving, kept driving, and I began to get a really sinky feeling in my stomach. I thought, mm -hmm. they're gonna rape us and they're gonna kill us and nobody's ever gonna know where we are. This is it, this is how I'm gonna were go out. Were you seedy characters? Oh yeah, are you kidding? So yeah. So you're dealing with? Oh yeah, but I didn't care. I, Pepper was fearless. I'm always under the influence of meth. Is that the drugs? Oh yeah. When you're, under, when you're under the influence of meth, you are invincible. You, you, that's why you see people do what they do on television, under the influence of meth. They're almost like superhuman. I, I would mouth off to anybody. You didn't want to cross me. I had a temper. I had a mouth. I mean, it was, it, it was when you're under the influence of meth, you're, you're superhuman and you feel like you're invincible. But it's insatiable. You can never get enough of it. You always have to keep doing it. So finally, in this limo, we stop. And I'm thinking, okay, phew. We had to drive a long way out because whoever's going to be at this party, you know, they don't want anybody to know they're here, right? Mm -hmm. So we get out. I see nothing but desert and the silhouette of mountains in the background. And I thought, oh, this is not good. We turned around, and there's a little tiny house. We went in the house, and I'm thinking, something's not right here. Usually there's a big table just like this, mounds of coke, meth, weed, alcohol everywhere, you know, music, and nothing was there, nothing except a souvenir shop. And I'm like, what is going on here? And this man walks out, and I kid you not, he looks like Colonel Sanders from Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I'm thinking, what the heck? 
And uh, he just begins to look at us. He just begins to look at us. Like, you know, and kind of like, I like that one, I like that one, I like that one, and I like that one. And I'm thinking, what? Kind of like cattle. Yes. And uh, I got angry. I, I got angry and I said, Pepper. somebody needs to blankety blank tell me what the blankety blank is going on here. Blankety blank right now or I'm out. You know, that was Pepper. And he just kind of laughed at me. Like, you're not in control here, honey. And I said, what is going on here? What, where's the party? Where's the men? Where's the music? What's going on? And he said, you don't know where you're at? I said, no. Somebody blankety blank tell me. And he said, you're at a brothel. And I'm like, what the, is a brothel? He's like, honey, it's a whorehouse. It's a house of prostitution. And I was like, oh, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I'm not into this. I'm not into this. Pepper is not into hookers. Because you gotta understand, when I walked into that bar in San Diego for the first time, I walked in as a cocktail waitress and I made a decision. I'm not gonna be one of those dancers. Mm -hmm. I'm not gonna cross that line. And then I crossed the line and I became one of the dancers. But at the end of the night when the bouncers would walk us out to our cars, Ben, we would all look across the street at the hookers, across the street at the, the two-bit motel there, and we'd be like, we're never gonna be like one of those. They're there and we're here. Now I'm in this brothel and I'm like, no, this is not, no, this is not what I'm into. And the man, he could see that I was upset. And he said, let me tell you something. I'll make you a deal. You stay with me for one week. And if you don't make more money than you've ever seen in your life, I'll drive you back to Vegas myself. He said, you don't have to do anything you don't want to do, but you stay with me for one week. And I guarantee you'll make more money than you've ever seen. And he was right. But that put me back in control. Mm -hmm. And I said, all right, you got a deal. He's a good manipulator. He was right. Yeah. I made more money that week than I'd ever seen in my life. Of course, in the house, we were supposed to give him half of everything we earned. I never did. He and his wife lived in a, a little trailer out behind the house, but people would come from all over. They would come from all over just to be in that place. Um, out from Vegas, it was just over the county line where prostitution is legal, mm -hmm. and this became my life. Day in, day out. I could, he would take me into Vegas whenever I want. I'd stay at the Tropicana, have all the cash I want, all the drugs I want, all the men I want, shopping, you name it. It was, Pepper had it all. Had it all. So let me ask you this, in the prostitution piece, mm -hmm. um, you know, what is that, you know, that experience, what's it like? Because you know what you're created for from a relational standpoint. Mm -hmm. What's it like emotionally and mentally? Is it just drug fuel where you just don't think about it and you don't think about the people you're with? It's simply a transaction? Or is there a part of you that says, you know, we're, we're souls, you know? We're created by God. We're souls. Yeah. He's got a soul, I got a soul, or she's got a soul, whatever. Yeah. How, how are you, did you ever, in that, in that moment, when you got involved in that, ever have a thought that's like, tap the brakes and what am I doing? Or was the money, alert, the allure of money and the drugs, you were just on that, that rocket ship ride? Yeah, so there, there's not one prostitute out there that does it because she wants to, that she loves what she's doing. The only way that I could survive was if I was numb if I was dead. So transaction after transaction, my heart would die just a little bit more. I got to the point in the bar in Vegas where I don't look at you anymore, I look through you. I can tell, prostitutes are a very good judge of character. Yeah. You can tell who's lying, you can tell who has money, you can tell who's a danger to you, you can tell who's really hurting. And I got to the point where, so you have to understand, my perception of men, all you want from me is sex. All you want from me is what I can do for you. And so instead of falling into the victim mentality, mm -hmm. I became the predator. And mm -hmm. I'm going to take you for everything you have. And this is the way that I got through my day to day. 
was knowing these guys aren't coming in here. They're not taking advantage of me. I'm going to milk them for all their work. It's a vicious way of looking at life in the world. Yes. I was completely dead on the inside. Mm. And yes, fueled by meth, fueled by alcohol, fueled by cigarettes. Um, this was my, my day to day. Do you still hear, that, still hear that, uh, that faint voice of God from time to time? Sure. Absolutely. When it was quiet, nobody else was around. Yeah. I'll give you a great example. One day I discovered I wasn't feeling too good. Something wasn't right on mm -hmm. the inside. Mm -hmm. And um, the owner's wife drove me to the grocery store and turns out I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. Great. What am I going to do with that? A prostitute who's pregnant is not conducive for good business. I was his biggest moneymaker in that house. And his wife looked at me and said, oh, don't worry about it, honey. Just be ready in the morning. We'll take care of it. Just be ready to go in the morning. And I'm thinking, what is she talking about? So in the morning, I was ready. She picked me up, put me in her car, drove me into Vegas. We walked into what I remember to be a building that looked like it was completely cinder block. Um, and it, it didn't have any windows. But I remember the receptionist desk, and I remember people speaking Spanish. Um, and I remember going into a room where they strapped me to a table. And when I woke up, I wasn't pregnant anymore. And the doctor saying to me, um, I faintly remember saying, two weeks flat on her back, no working. And I, they drove me back to the brothel, and I was up working that night. John after John after John after John, because you're just dead. Now you say, was that little voice there? I knew that abortion was wrong. But I'm trying to justify in my mind, I have no idea who the father is. I have no idea what the, the poor condition of this child is going to be, because I'm a drug addict, I'm an alcoholic, I smoke like a chimney. And I'm, what kind of a condition, what kind of a mother am I going to be? What kind of a life is this child going to have? And so I'm trying to justify. And this is when I began to say, God, you there? I remember learning about you in Sunday school. I remember talking to you. I remember knowing that there's nobody more powerful than you, that you love and that you forgive. And I would begin to introduce those conversations. You know, and it wasn't. So in a way, you had a seed planted in you. Oh yeah. But it was a spiritual seed, ultimately, that really yeah. found its way. It never, it it never left me. It never left me. And this, to me, is the most powerful part of my testimony. When I share with people that even though I did everything I did to run away from God as far as I could, He never left me. He was there with me in that bar. He was there with me when I was being molested as a child. He was there with me when I was in the brothel. He was there with me when I was strapped to that table. He was there with me. He never left me. Because I. so many people say to me, well, where was God when I was going through this? Where was God when you were being beaten by your mother with a horse whip? Where was God when this and that happened? He was right there with me. That's hard for people to understand, but faithfulness and loyalty to me now, I, I appreciate that about the Lord more than anything. So going back to when you were, you were pregnant and you mm -hmm. had the abortion, did the abortion cause that dead person to start to wake up a little bit? Not at all. No. No. If anything, I sunk deeper into it. Until a couple weeks later. Something happened a couple weeks later after the abortion. Um, in the house, we would take turns, and it was my turn one night, and the bell rang. And there's a big iron gate outside the brothel. You have to buzz the Johns in. And uh, I could see a large shadow um, outside of the gate. And I just, you know, you just think, oh, God. So I buzzed him in. And there was something different about this John. Ben, there was something different about him. Um, I could tell he had never been in a brothel before. I could tell he had no idea where he was at. But I could also tell that he didn't need a hooker. He needed a friend. 
this guy was definitely hurting. Um, there was one for a moment I was thinking I'm going to take him for all his money and then, then I'll feel sorry for him. Um, but there was, a, there was an innocence and a vulnerability about this man that I could not take advantage of him. And so uh, afterwards, I sent him on his way up to a hotel and I just, in my mind, <laughs> thought, this guy's not going to make it. I end up calling the hotel to see if he made it okay up the road because there was a bunch of stuff happening in Vegas. I think there was a Mike Tyson fight and believe it or not, I don't think there was any available rooms. And so there was a little hotel up the road from the brothel. I called to see if he was there. I was just about ready to hang up the phone and he picked up. And I said, hey, it's Pepper. I was just, you know, checking to make sure you were there okay. Every day then from there on out, he was calling to the brothel to talk to me. And even in my drug-induced stupors, alcohol, whatever, I would sit on the phone in that brothel and, and talk with him, having a normal conversation with somebody. Didn't want nothing for me, just to talk. Mm. We had things in common. And it was, it was amazing. Like, it was nice to just have a conversation with somebody. Mm -hmm. But this guy wasn't from Vegas. He was from the East Coast. And eventually he had to leave. But he kept calling out to the brothel. One day he asked me if I'd come visit. And I said, well, that's never going to happen. The owner will never let me leave. But I needed a break. I needed to get out of there. I needed a vacation, if you will. So I mustered up the courage, and I went to the owner, and I said, if you let me go for a visit, just let me out of here for a while. I promise you, I give you my word, I will come back. And he looked at me, and he said, you better. So I, the next time this guy called on the phone, I told him, I said, um, so if you still want me to come and visit you, I'll come visit you, but you gotta send me a ticket. Right. The next day, a knock on the door at the brothel, FedEx delivered a plane ticket to me. I got on a plane and I went to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. I don't know if you've ever heard of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. No. So what is in Lancaster? Um, I don't know, I, I, my parents, my dad used to, um, was, was a child in that area. Well, let me tell you, Amish people, yes. Mennonite people. Yes, okay. So. Just imagine, if you will, I am about 110 pounds. I wear nothing shorter than a six-inch stiletto at any given time, and my clothes are like a second skin. I've got 24-inch extensions, and I, I rock. when I, I mean, I, wherever I'm walking, I'm owning that room. So you can imagine, when I get on an airplane from Vegas, it is a miracle of God that I got through security with as much dope as I had in my suitcase. But I got to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and I got off the airplane, and there I was. I mean, necks were turning, and here I was just walking, owning it in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania airport. And for nine days, I had a normal life. Mm. I, had, I still had my drugs. I still smoked, but it, I had a, it was nice to be able to lay my head down on a pillow at night and not do anything illegal. It was nice to not have to service John after John after John after John. And then you asked me if something ever awoke. Mm. Something began to come back to life. The thaw began. And there was a hunger birthed for maybe there is life outside of Vegas. Maybe I was born for more than just to be a prostitute. I had all the money I wanted. I had all the men I wanted. I had anything I could ever buy. But I was miserable. I was empty on the inside. But those nine days came to an end, and I knew I needed to go back because I gave my word. And so with tears streaming down my face, I got back on that airplane, and I went back to Vegas. And I was there for two more weeks. Sort of like you went through the, uh, the wilderness experience in that nine days. You oh. had to go wander a little bit to get relativity and perspective. So let me go back to 
the abortion. What would you tell mm-hmm. girls? And you, you're going through a lot that time. So had you not been into drugs and you had an abortion, you're otherwise healthy, that would be impactful. I've met a number of women. I've come across a number of women that have had abortions. And mm-hmm. it, a lot of people debate on either side of it. But what, one of the things I, what I've noticed, without exception, with each, within each of these women, was the idea that once they had that abortion, there was tremendous guilt, mm-hmm. there was tremendous shame, mm-hmm. there was tremendous you know, coping challenges. And then they'd get into drugs and alcohol and other things. And we're talking, you know, if they did it in their teenage years, it followed them in their 30s and 40s. What would you tell women today that are you know, thinking about sex and sexually active? Obviously, protection is not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're in that decision point of abort or not to abort. And obviously, it's going to depend on the situation. There's incest, rape. I get that. Mm-hmm. But we're talking casual sex. They get out and get pregnant. What would you tell that girl today based on your experience? So she's pregnant and contemplating abortion? Yes. Whew. I'd love to sit down and have a cup of coffee and share my experience. Um, you know, I didn't think I had a choice, but we all have choices. And that word choice um, has been stripped down to something that God never intended it to be. I would tell her, there's a life growing on the inside of you. You may not have intended that to happen, but because of your choice or someone else's choice, because rape and incest is an issue, I get that. But because of your choice or someone else's choice, there's now a life that is growing on the inside of you, and that life deserves an opportunity to fulfill everything that it was designed to. Um, I would encourage her. I would, I'd make myself available to her. From, I, would, I would make myself available to her on those times when she's feeling like her life is going to end or that it's, she's going to suffer guilt, shame, and condemnation for the rest of her life because I know what it's like to walk through that. Um, I would encourage people not to have sex you know, in, in that way because it's a, there's a responsibility that comes with it. And there's unintended but, consequences that they yeah. usually don't walk their way nope. themselves through in no. terms of we do this, yeah. here's the possibilities. Yeah. The term casual sex is hypocritical. The term casual sex is a lie. Because when you decide to give yourself to someone in that way, there is an exchange that happens. There's an exchange, not only the physical exchange, but there's the emotional exchange. Physically, I mean, I have great friends that are in the medical field and say, you know, all you have to do is say, when you sleep with that person, you've now slept with everybody they've ever slept with. So there are consequences. Um, you, You do have choice. Um, but you you don't get to walk away from the consequences of those yeah, choices. You're going to own that the rest yeah. of your life. So I found it interesting that you got to point in your life and your lifestyle that it lost its luster. And I think this is important. Yeah. This is an important message because a lot of people in the society, it's all about um, having the good, looking good, and feeling good, and mm-hmm. that's the good life. Yes. And we know it's not the good life. No. But, but people buy into it, and marketing people do a great job of of uh, extolling the virtues of that lifestyle. You see it on commercials. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about that lifestyle you're in, because you had it all. I did. You had it all, yet it lost its luster. And I suspect there's a lot of people that then go to drugs and alcohol because life's lost its luster, and they got dep- depression, guilt, and anxiety and what whatnot from sure. that. Sure, sure. Um, but expound on that. What, what does that mean, it lost its luster? If you have everything, the world says, if you have everything, you're happy. What does that mean, it lost its luster? One of the ways I like to explain it is there's a God-shaped hole on the inside of you that no amount of money, no amount of men, no amount of of things is ever going to fill. So you can have it all but still be empty. And that's where I was. I was completely empty, miserable. How many times have you seen somebody on the news, somebody who has everything, and yet they end up on the cover of whatever it may be or on TMZ's front page because, you know, 
they had all the money, they have everything they want, but yet they make foolish choices or they're miserable, you know? Money, things, people cannot satisfy you. We were not created to be content and fulfilled with things. We were created for relationship. And there's only one way that you are going to fulfill what you were put on the planet to do is when you have that relationship with the Lord because he's the one who put everything on the inside of you the way he did. He created you the way he did for a purpose. People don't tap into their purpose. One of the greatest people in my life taught me, Judy, you can spend your life climbing the ladder of success only to realize when you get to the top of the building, it's leaned against the wrong building. Right. And I've seen people do that. And it's, it, it's absolutely, it, the foundation is shaky. It's not going to stand. Um, and it's an insatiable appetite. And the problem is people's identity becomes I'm a career CEO or yeah. I'm super wealthy or I'm X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And then when that identity gets rocked, they have an identity crisis, right? right? Because like, who am I really? Yes. Is it this career person? What about the relationships? And yeah. they're wherever they're at, right? It's all inward. Yeah. It's inward. You become your identity. You become COO, CEO, C, whatever C-level it can be. You may have everything, but everything is inward. Everything is inward. I know what it's like to live that kind of a selfish lifestyle. Mm -hmm. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? Why do you want to know me? What's in it for What can you do for me? What a relief to be able to wake up now and think in the morning, what can I do to be a blessing to someone else? So let's, let's talk about that because that's, <laughs> that's quite a transition, right? Most people would go through what you've been through and say, you know, I'm just going to end it. Yeah. Like, what worth do I have? Yeah. Um, because I followed the world's recipe for success and yeah. it didn't work out. Yeah. And I don't have a construct morally or this thing called God. So there is no other options. So let's just let's just consider the ultimate option. But talk us walk us through a little bit how your relationship because obviously the seeds were planted early mm -hmm. and then God gave birth to that seed to get in that experience in the brothel. Yeah. How does your relationship with God provide the healing purpose and the ability to never look back in your old life? Well, I'll take you back to the brothel. Because there came a night um, after that one particular John went back that I, I cried out to God again. When nobody was there and everything was quiet in the house, I said, God, if you haven't left me yet and I haven't screwed up my life to the point where you can't do anything with it, I will give you my life back. I need you to get me out of here. I need you to get me out of here. And it was at that moment. Oh, wait he, a second. You have all the money. Yeah. Why couldn't you just leave? Is there a threat to your... Yes and no. Or is it the psychological? Psychological. Like, where am I going to go? This is what I do. This I have, is how yeah, I do my life. I don't have a plan. I don't have a plan. No. Pepper's always in control. I don't have a plan. But I knew I couldn't stay there because nothing made me happy anymore. Mm -hmm. Even though I had everything that the world says is successful, I was still empty, broken, miserable, hurting, angry, bitter, all of those things. Not happy. Mm -hmm. And so I cried out to God in that place, and he met me right there again. So this time, I told the owner, I'm finished. I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. And I called that same John up, and I said, look, if you'll have me, I'll come and be with you, and we'll try to figure this thing out, because he was in the process of going through a divorce. And the brothel owner looked at me, and he said, I hope you know what you're doing, because he knew how much money was walking out the door. And he could have killed me right at that moment. He could have killed me, buried me out there, and nobody would have ever found me. But it sounds like it's not unheard of. No, it happens all the time. Yeah. Happens all the time. But he didn't. My drug dealer came, picked me up at the brothel. I gave everything that I owned that I couldn't fit my suitcase to the rest of the girls in the house. Drove me to the airport. I looked at her and I handed her my last quarter bag of meth. And I said, you take this because I'm not going to need this anymore. And she laughed at me because she knew what a user I was. 
And I turned my back and I walked into that airport. I got on the airplane and I flew to Lancaster County. At that moment, God delivered me instantaneously from my meth addiction. I never touched it again. And you never had a desire for it? No. Wow. No. Wow. There was something he did on the inside of me that it took away. I, I didn't want it anymore. Hmm. Now, that's not to say that occasionally I wouldn't, I felt like I would smell it. I felt like, you know, mm -hmm. I, I slept for about three weeks, but I never went through any kind of drug rehab or anything like that. Mm. But God instantaneously delivered me from that meth addiction. So I got on that plane. I went to Lancaster County the day after his divorce was final. I married him. And this past July 28th, we celebrated our 28th wedding anniversary. That is amazing. And that young man sitting yeah. back over there. And you know, it says a lot about him and his character oh. and his love and yeah. how God orchestrates things. So it's what interesting. You talk, talk about this perilous journey mm -hmm. of rebellion, pride, ego. Yeah. But all along, God is shaping this vessel, this person. And, you know, for some people, it's like a horse or a, a, a mule. I've been to a lot of dude ranches. You know, when you get a brand new, you know, young colt, you got to break it. Mm -hmm. And some are easier than others. And I'd say the same thing is true of my life and my kids. I've seen it mm -hmm. repeat itself again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And it's funny what God will take us through to get us to the purified person he wants us to be at some level, right? Yes. And so I'm listening to your story, and it's kind of awesome in a lot of respects because he takes you through this journey now to be now part of this organization, Open Gate International, yeah. to really have a, a force multiplier impact, right? It's not just you and your story, but because of that experience, it's driven a passion in you. I, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth to really connect with people, human trafficked or disadvantaged or abused, to give them hope, to give them life, to give them skills. So uh, take the audience through... Um, how, how did your past experience shape your passion to take on the role at Open Gate International? Well, you have to insert Deidre Pujols into that equation. Um, because when I met them back in St. Louis, we, you know, over probably hundreds of cups of coffee, uh, we would talk about the things that were going on in the world and, and what we would like to do about it. Human trafficking wasn't always a buzzword. But when it began to be a buzzword, we would talk about it. You know, she had young kids, I had young kids. And it was hard for us to think about our daughters being trafficked or something happening to them in, in that kind of a way. Over the years, we would talk about it even more. In 2016, we decided to, to start traveling and seeing what is really happening in this trafficking arena. We traveled to Mexico. We went to Brazil during the Olympics. We went to Moldova. We went to India. We went to Cambodia. All of these different places for one purpose. What is happening in this human trafficking thing? What is it really about? So one of the things I love the most about Deidre, she's not just gonna do some research on the internet and say, okay, now I know what we need to do. She wants to go, she wants to experience it. And she she wants to herself. see it, absolutely. Yeah. But both of us, yeah. I, I, I tell everybody who's gonna get involved with Deidre, every day prepare 90 miles an hour with your hair on fire. It's like drinking out of the fire hose every day, which is why I love her so much because we're both like that. <laughs> So we, at the end of 2016, we found out what was happening and we asked the same question everywhere we went to these wonderful nonprofits that were involved in rescues and raids and rehabilitation of these survivors. What do you need? What, what's missing? How can we help? What can we do? Every single one of them said there's a gap between the rehabilitative process and the reintegration. If you're 11 years old and you're kidnapped and trafficked for five years. Mm. Now you're 16 and you're miraculously rescued and you're, you're taken into this wonderful faith-based rehabilitative uh, organization, loves you back into wholeness, and now you're ready to begin your life, you're 18. 
you have no high school diploma, you have no GED, you have no work experience, you have no viable skill set. Who's going to hire you? What can you do? So she said, that's what we're going to do. We are going to develop a vocational training program that is going to help, specifically designed to help human trafficking survivors, vulnerable populations reintegrate into society. And she's passionate about culinary arts, so we picked culinary arts because no matter where you are in the world, you have to eat. Right. So if we train you in culinary arts, we're going to be able to get you a job in a restaurant, a hotel, a bakery, or maybe you want to start your own business. Mm -hmm. So Open Gate International was born. Um, in 2016, she came up with the acronym. Open stands for the oppressed, the powerless, the endangered, and the neglected. Mm. These were the people that we wanted to go after. GATE stands for how we go after it, a global alternative to training and employment. So it launched here in Orange County. And she wanted to bring me on board because I was I was happy in St. Louis, working at the St. Louis Dream Center as the family life pastor in the inner city of St. Louis, just happy, you know, doing what I was doing. But I knew the Lord began to deal with me. Um, change is coming. Change is coming. You need to get ready to lay your life down at the Dream Center because I'm getting ready to transition you into a new season of your life. And sure enough, when Opigate was born, she asked me to create the life skills curriculum that we wanted to couple with the vocational training because mm -hmm. it's not just enough to train somebody in a vocation. You can have the greatest culinary pedigree in the world, but if nobody can get along with you, you show up to you show up to work late all the time. You got a rotten attitude. Yeah, you can't like teach Hell's anybody Kitchen. anything. That guy in Hell's Kitchen? Yeah, right. Gordon, Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay. That guy's bonkers. He's <laughs> nuts. He's mean, right? He doesn't have yes. the best personal skills, but it's good for TV ready. It is good for TV. And 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 oddly enough, you bring him up. That's one of the first things, the first myths that we have to dispel when our students come into our class here in Orange County. It's not going to be like Ryan Ramsey, right? Off, We're not no, going to rip no. your head off. We're not going to scream at you. But yeah, this is how I bring my entire life into that life skill curriculum. Even though we embrace people of all different faiths that come in to our program, it's not, we don't label it faith-based. I have created a life skill curriculum that is completely based on the Word of God, but I just extracted all the Christianese out of it. Mm -hmm. So we talk about positive attitude, enthusiasm. We teach the spirit of excellence and integrity. We talk about conflict resolution. But because of the nature of the people that we work with, I specifically inserted lessons in there on guilt, shame, and condemnation. I inserted lessons in there on bitterness, resentment, and unforgiveness. That's what they're going to struggle with. They in absolutely space, are, yeah. absolutely. And so it's uh, it's difficult, but it's life changing. We only have them for twelve weeks, but in twelve weeks, their lives are completely transformed. Completely now, do you have transformed. A, a, a branch in St. Louis, or is it just in Orange County? Or? Orange County is the flagship, but we're also uh, doing the same program in Mexico City, in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, Mumbai, India. We just celebrated our first graduation, 21 graduates. Um, we're also in a is little... from that Muay Thai or Muay Thai? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Deidre spoke about that. Yes. That That's entire cool. village in Sway yeah. Pak used to be all brothels. One of the buildings is now uh, a gym. One of them's a school. One of them's a church. And that gym is called the Lord's Gym. It's where they, the coach birds the former national Muay Thai champion is training those young boys so nice. that they don't become pimps and traffickers. Yeah. It's cool. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah. Well, our goal and our heart's desire is to expand into every state in this nation um, and every country, every country. Okay. So this is like, I'm reading a book and I'm totally riveted by your story <laughs> and, 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 and thank you for your ability and willingness to share it because for a lot of people, this would be uncomfortable. Yeah. But I get to see how God's worked in your heart. It's just, this has transformed a lot of people that listen to this. Yeah. What are one or two pearls of wisdoms you could offer people given your journey that if they took your advice, it could really transform their personal and professional experiences? I mean, they could be in a professional job and bitter and angry about their lot in life or the boss they have, or in their personal life, they could be helter-skelter. They're 12 or 14. Yeah. 
So what are one or two pearls that you could offer that if they took your advice, it could really be transformative? The difference between religion and relationship. Find out who God is. Give him an opportunity. Give him an opportunity to invade your life. Find out who God is. Secondly, I would say love yourself for who you are. Don't compare yourself to other people because that is, uh, that's an insatiable thing mm -hmm. that will never be happy. It will never be satisfied. Be okay with who you are. Love who you are. Own who you are. Rock who you are because you're, you're, you're beautiful. You're wonderful. You're fine just the way you are. None of us are perfect. We're all a work in progress. But when you wake up in the morning, when you look in the mirror, you should love that person because anything less than that is saying, God, you made a mistake. And if I was the one who created me, I would have done it differently. Right. Yeah. That's ego. That's arrogance. Yeah. A lot of people think that. Yeah, way. they do. That's why we have all these uh, cosmetic surgeries. <laughs> well, kind of, you know, I mean, I'm I, not knocking them. <laughs> I'm just saying it's. Uh, I mean, people struggle with identity and who they are, and they good enough because this whole culture with media is pumping out. You know, you're not good enough. You have to look this way. You have to be this certain weight. Yes. Have a certain net worth, which is nuts. I mean, it's, yeah. You, you know, have apps that can make you skinny. You can apps that oh, make you ridiculous. look young. Yeah. And you, you know, know? It, you know, when you when you're on your deathbed, you're not saying, man, if I could have just made that forty million, or if I could have met that famous person. Yeah. That thing's or your politic politics. I'm Democrat. I'm this, I'm socialist. You don't think about that when you're no. about to, to meet your maker. No. Um, who's that person's had the most influence on your life? Positively? Could be anybody. Mm. I've learned, I've, I've, I learned from both. I would have to say God in his mercy put an amazing woman in my life uh, back in, in mid-90s, and her name is Joyce Meyer. I found her, well yeah. found her on television, and I began to learn that you can study the Bible for yourself and that God wanted to have a relationship with you and that you could be as intimate with him as you wanted to. And so it's because of her influence initially through the television that eventually um, my husband and I moved from the East Coast to St. Louis to work for Joyce Meyer Ministries. Mm. And then, again, God in his mercy allowed me to work in, in a way that she was the godly influence in my life. I got to see how to be a godly woman. How do you talk? How do you dress? How do you act? How do you forgive? How, what's your motive? What is excellence? What is love? What does, what does that look like? And I, through watching her do ministry, I learned how to do ministry the right way. Um, her and Dave, uh, John and Lisa Bevere, another great influence in my life. Uh, positively, just mentors um, that I've been able to follow through their books and through their teachings uh, that have helped ground me in the Word of God um, and introduced me to that intimate relationship with the Lord that no one can shake. Mm. That's profound. That's mm -hmm. important. Mm -hmm. You need that solid foundation for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. If you can go back and give yourself advice, what would it be? Not everybody who proposes to be your friend is your friend. Um, and again, I, I go back to this a lot, Ben, because people, people are so given to not being happy with who they are when they look in the mirror. If you're not going to be happy with who you are, you will let everybody else shape you. Mm. You'll let somebody's going to shape your identity. You need to find out why you were created and put on this planet because you do have a purpose. There is a creator. There is a God. You didn't just happen. Um, and he put you here for a reason. I say, I teach our students, there's two days that are very important in your life. Finding out why you were put here and then going out and making that happen, right? Know who you are. Be okay with that. 
Don't compare yourself to other people. Run your race. Stay in your lane and try to affect as many people as you possibly can with the love of God. Yeah. Share your story. Yeah. It's the only one. There's seven and a half billion people it's on the planet. Unique. It is unique. There's only one you. There's only one you. If you spend your life trying to be somebody else, we're going to miss out on the you that everyone else could enjoy. Yeah, I, heard a good, I heard a good analogy that there was this idea where um, you know, a lot of people with tattoos, and maybe they're still popular tattoos, you know, teenage kids see people with tattoos or earrings or nose rings or tongue mm -hmm. rings or whatever, mm -hmm. and they go out and they follow. Mm -hmm. They follow the, the example. And mm -hmm. the idea is that we're an original. Yeah. And when people do those things, that's a carbon copy. Mm -hmm. And we know that originals are worth more than carbon copies. So yes. the idea that you go out there and try to follow the masses, what's interesting to me is that people want to be their own individual, and they'll get into fights over it. But yet, they're lemmings and they're sheeple. If you really look at their behavior, they just follow, mm -hmm. right? But there's this ego that says, no, I'm an individual, I'm important. Yeah. Well, if, if you really take that to a more logical conclusion, you could say, well, listen, I'm an individual, I'm important, and therefore, the ideas that I've crafted that I'm not following the masses on are probably more important to society. I mean, if you look at all artists and artisans, and you look at the Starry Night painting where all these amazing stars you mm -hmm. have, um, in, front, in the foreground, you have a, a building... Uh, you have trees. He didn't call it the tree or the building. He called it a starry night. Yeah. And yet it's a world-renowned picture that an artist created, not because he followed anybody, mm -hmm. not because he was a carbon copy, but he was a very unique and individual. And to me, what you're saying is really poignant because it's really important to be you. Yes. And uniquely you, mm -hmm. um, because that's what really sets the course of the world on fire. That's how you really influence people in ways that helps them to be profound in their own way. I remember one time... Um because I, I so, you ask who, who was one person that shaped my life. I so admired Joyce. Mm -hmm. I so admired her. Um, she cut her hair short. Her hair was short, so I cut my oh. hair short. She <laughs> right. wore big earrings, so I wore big earrings. You know, and, and um, I remember one day that the Lord spoke to me very clearly. And he said, um, you know, I already have a Joyce Meyer. But I'm, are you interested in a Judy Lamborn? Because I really need a Judy Lamborn. If you're interested in Judy Lamborn... And I said, you know what, Lord? Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the the things that changed my life the most, Ben, was the, this. God speaks in such soft ways, but so profoundly sometimes. Mm -hmm. One night, it was very early in the morning. Nobody in the house was awake, and I was just laying in bed. It's not very hard for me to be grateful to God, because I know where I'd be had He not intervened in my life. And it's not very hard for me to begin that conversation with Him. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that I'm alive. Thank you that there's no residual effect of drugs and alcohol in my system, that I'm, my mind, I'm in my right mind, that I'm healthy, that you blessed me with a husband and two beautiful kids and almost four grandbabies. And I was just thanking him, just thanking him. Uh, and uh, the Lord spoke to me, and he said, yeah, I changed pepper into salt. Oh, that's good. Ooh, that's a punchline. That's a good book title, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I changed Pepper cool. into Salt because, and for the Lord to identify with Pepper, because she's not a nice individual, mm -hmm. not a nice person, but him, for him to identify with Pepper, because the Bible says we're to be salt and light. Mm -hmm. And salt adds flavor. Salt preserves. Salt is important. And uh, for him to say, yeah, I changed pepper into salt. I was just thanking him. Thank you for changing me because I'm not who I used to be. And just so beautifully, he said, yeah, I changed pepper into salt. And there's, you know, I wasn't a bashful heathen. I wasn't a bashful sinner. I was all in. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it would be a disservice to the Lord and the ultimate, of, the ultimate form of hypocrisy if I was any less of a Christian. So I am a bold Christian. I didn't have any intention of writing a book. The Lord told me, you're going to write a book and it's going to be called From Vegas to Victory. Yeah, who wants to tell all those stories about what happened to you as a child and you know what pornography did to you and how you got addicted to things and how you know all of this? Well, what I found over the years that was published in 2009, were over 10 years later, you know how many people are suffering from, mm-hmm. from the results of an abortion? Mm-hmm. Women that come at the altar when I preach and share my testimony weeping because they're suffering with guilt, shame, and condemnation. Men that are coming bound by, by addiction to pornography couples that are coming because of infidelity, um, mothers coming because their daughter is, is off hooked on drugs and dancing on a pole somewhere, you know, I can share with them, don't give up, keep praying. And you're credible. Yeah. Yes, because I speak from the voice of experience. And when Deidre and I are in the middle of Mexico City, in the, in the worst district of Mexico City, in the middle of the night, preaching the gospel to those prostitutes on the streets, we do it with just as much as we would as we will next week at Strikeout Slavery in a, in a beautiful baseball stadium here in Orange County because we can speak from the voice of experience. Mm-hmm. We love being in the middle of the streets in Cambodia, ministering to those prostitutes, making gifts for them, making lunches for them in Mexico City, in India, watching and allowing the Lord to do that. Are we fearless in our approach to it? Yes. Do we use wisdom? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, I wasn't a bold, I was a bold heathen. I'm, I'm not going to be anything less as You're a Christian. Christian right? I believe that God deserves that. He deserves my A game every day, mm-hmm. every day. And as long as I have breath in my body, for anybody who will sit still long enough, I'm going to share with them what God's done in my life. My dream is to go all over this world and share that he's real. He is who he says he is. He created you. He's got a great plan for your life, and he's given you everything you need to fulfill that plan. Well, I'd say to anybody watching this that they'd have to really take a close eye or take a close look at your life, your story. And to me, you pivoted out of a very tough place, and you made a different choice mm-hmm. um, to get renewal, to get healing, to do all the right things. But I think that's something that people should look at. I mean, you know, some people, uh, when you say God, they, they kind of quiver for whatever reason. Yeah. But they should at least think about it and consider it because you have a recipe, you, you've identified something that was extremely helpful for you, that's transformed your lives, transformed the lives of others. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth looking at, at the very Mm -hmm. least, right? Because if people are in those places and they're trying to get out, um, and sometimes the family just disowns them. Like, yeah, we're done. Well, they've they've abused them. The family, they've stolen from them. They've they've exhausted the family. They've they've burned bridges. They've burned so many bridges. That's what I love about what we do. Open Gate exists to give people who need that 54th chance or the 75th chance, or the 176th chance, exactly. you know? Yeah. Is there anything you'd like to share with the audience that we haven't covered? Goodness. I'm writing two more books. <laughs> They're going to be um, just probably a little bit, well, one's going to be a little bit more provocative than that one, but it's it touches on the power of choice. Mm. Like I, when I said that that word in today's society has been stripped of the meaning that God intended it mm-hmm. uh, to have, it is going to identify the choices that he's given us to make. Right. Um, and it's going to be powerful. Uh, so, and the other one is going to be a, a devotional that people can use um, in my private times with the Lord. He's the love of my life, you know. My husband, he knows that he'll never be number one in my life. And so I felt impressed of God to write a devotional called Good Morning Abba. And it's going to be my intimate conversations with him because mm. he's the first person I... I speak to when I wake up in the morning. He's the last person I speak to when I go to bed at night. But he, he spoke to me and he said, Judy, people don't know that they can know me like that. 
they don't they have a different idea of who I am they have a misnomer it's 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 a wrong idea of who I am will you be willing to share our intimate conversations with the world so that they can know that I am a loving Heavenly Father and that I want to be intimately involved in every breath, in every blink, in every motive, in every decision. I want to be involved as much as they will allow me in their life. And any individual who will allow the Lord to come in and invade their life, He'll go into every nook and cranny and He'll heal what, what the world can't heal. He can heal what money can't buy. And it's amazing. So yeah, those are some projects that we're working on. Exciting. Where can they learn more about you? I have a website, judylamborn.com, okay. or they can reach out to me through Open Gate International. Okay. Absolutely. Super. Wow, yeah. what a story. Um, this is probably one of the most incredible interviews I've had on the show to date. Oh, um, your, your passion, your insight, your perspective, your journey um, is transformational. I hope, I hope it impacts people the way it impacted me. So thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for Appreciate having it. me. That's it from Beyond. You can uh, learn more about Beyond on uh, our website, beyondbenbobo.com, or on YouTube, Beyond Ben Bobo. Hit like and subscribe. And remember, until next time, becoming is better than being. Thanks. Ah, you're welcome. That was awesome. Thanks. Thanks.